growing your business is tough, but don't worry, we've got you covered. We interview industry experts on how they've solved their most challenging business problems in SaaS or e-commerce. No fluff, just step-by-step playbooks to help you dominate your market and crush the competition. This is the How We Solve podcast. Here's your host. Today, we're talking about how to future-proof your business to survive and profit from radical change. You know, in these times, a lot of things have been changing very drastically. And for some people, it worked out really well. And some people were able to pivot and some people were not able to pivot. And today's guest wrote a book called Rogue Waves. His name is Jonathan Brill. He helps leaders define and build their future. He is an expert speaker and advisor on resilient growth, decision-making and innovation under uncertainty. And, you know, now we're in really uncertain times and I'm really excited to have Jonathan on the show. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, it's wonderful to see you. Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you for being here. Really excited to dig into your book. It's out already, right? It is. It came out in August. It's uh, available around Europe. I believe most of Asia at this point. Perfect. Do you have the Audible version as well? There's an Audible version that just came out. It's excellent. It's a voiced by a guy named Terry McGovern, who's an old school radio guy. And so it's just beautiful to listen to. And the digital book is out as well. Awesome. I'm an audible person. I stare at, on the screen <laughs> all day, all day, you know, so I prefer to just like listen to something when I'm running. So I'm definitely going to get this. So Jonathan, maybe you give us a little bit more background on, on what you do and what made you, why did you come up with this book? Why did you write this? Yeah, sure thing. So I spent about 25 years running product innovation firms. We brought about 350 products from idea to market. About five years ago, HP, the computer company, called me and they said, hey, you know, you've worked in all of these industries. You've helped companies figure out what their future needs to look like. We need to have that capability in our organization so that we understand as we re-architect the firm, what do our capabilities need to be three years from now? What do they need to be five years from now to be resilient to whatever might come? And so I came in and I thought my job was really going to be to be that product innovation guy because, well, that's what I'd always done. And what I discovered was when you're in these large organizations, there are all of these other things that are important too in terms of how do you do governance? How do you just manage communications? How do you figure out what your workforce skills are across a 58,000-person organization? And so a lot of my work was figuring out how to kind of consolidate all of the intelligence in the organization and build reporting structures in it so that we were looking at the future in a more cohesive way as opposed to you know everyone kind of having their own vision of what that would be. And what I realized is that if you do that well, you can create a far more resilient organization. And if you believe that the next decade is going to be more volatile than the last, and certainly uh, like the first year has proven that, Maybe we need to be thinking about growth differently. There was an article in HBR yesterday, a profile of a study by McKinsey that said, hey, companies that take the long view, that look longer term and and don't really focus on quarterly results, over time, they tend to do about 40, 45% better than their peer set. And that's across industries. The other data point that I kind of think about when you look at the relationship between resilience and growth is a study that Rena McGrath led of 2,600 companies between 2000 and 2010, global companies, billion dollar plus, just take a wild guess how many of them met both their revenue and their margin targets every quarter. Of 2,600 companies? Yeah. A third? Divide by a lot, about five. Not 5%, five. That's crazy. And so the, the point here is that when we start looking at 
quarterly revenue is how we manage our companies, we have a huge problem. We've got to start thinking about volatility because at the end of the day, you know, when you're looking at quarterly revenue, when you're looking at incremental growth, compound growth, what you often ignore is that that growth sits on top of compound volatility, right? These massive waves of change. And individually, we can typically manage these, right? Like we probably could have the last couple of respiratory pandemics, we managed pretty well, but some things changed. The travel out of China increased 10 times between 2011 and 2019, moving them from an irrelevant tourism spender to the largest on the planet, right? So when there was a spark, the spread, the global spread was instantaneous. We put about 400 million people between 1995 and 2015 in China into cities, which meant that we cut out biome, we cut out wildlife, and, and we pushed up against all of these potential zoonotic diseases, these animal-borne diseases. So what was manageable 10 years ago, pandemics, and we got probably better at intelligence, surveillance, all these things to deal with a pandemic suddenly wasn't manageable today. And it wasn't because of the pandemic. It was because of that compound volatility. And most companies weren't looking at that. They, they kind of assumed that what had been true yesterday, what had been true in the last pandemic, was true today. And that's why eight of the 10 largest publicly held companies in America failed to identify pandemics as a risk. Yeah, it's the, the, we've always done it like this, kind of always looking back just at historical data. And I want to pick up on a few things that you said. I think it's very interesting. Also, you, you see like, before, like the biggest companies in the world were like for hundreds of years were like more like less the same. But now it's a lot of new companies are popping up and moving them, these large traditional companies out of the top rankings. So yeah, a lot of movement is, is always happening. And on the managing a company by quarterly re results, there's this amazing book called Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods. He kind of makes the point, you know, it talks about conscious capitalism and that you should always play the long game and not just like look at the quarterly results. You know, let's say, okay, you fire everybody who's senior and bring a new, new workforce. And then next quarter, you look like a hero because the numbers are so much better because you pay these people less. But over time, the poor customer satisfaction will bite you in the butt. Always playing the long game, I guess, is a big thing. It's a challenge. And it's certainly a challenge for publicly held companies. What we're seeing is that the growth of shareholder premises since the 1970s, at least in the U.S., has really impacted the ability of leaders to make a lot of those long-term decisions. And the, the explosion of private capital, private equity, moving into the public markets, that's also really limited the ability. You know, A company like HP, for instance, they had a real problem, like the company really wanted to move toward this stronger long-term focus. At the same time, there was the constant threat of a corporate takeover artist, a venture pirate, trying to come in and break up the firm. And in fact, at the beginning of COVID, what we saw was exactly that. Carl Icahn had a fully funded deal with, with Xerox to try and buy HP, its nearest peer competitor, because Xerox's performance looked theoretically better because of some financial gains. But when COVID came, something really interesting happened, right? It wasn't what the analysts expected. Xerox's earnings per share, they dropped about 69% by gap, which is how we do accounting in the United States. It's kind of the standard. Whereas HP stayed stable. These are the two nearest US peer competitors. How is that possible? It's because one was designed for resilience and one was designed for the quarter. 
both highly performance-driven companies, right? Like HP gives a tremendous dividend to shareholders. It is driven by quarterly results. But even in that environment, you saw this radical difference between these two organizations. But the same things apply to small to medium-sized companies. In fact, SMBs, especially privately held companies, tend to be able to look at the longer term more effectively. So what do you do? What are the things you can do? There's kind of what I call the ABCs of resilient growth. First is awareness. How do you help your people become aware of what's going on outside of the organization? Because at the end of the day, you know, there are four major buckets of risk and opportunity, threat and opportunity for every company, right? Financial threats. Maybe a, an asset gets flooded out in Germany because of the floods this summer. But maybe if you offload that or, or you provide insurance or something, it's a product opportunity for you too. So you can kind of think about it that way. The second is operations, right? Where are your operational risks? The third is external shifts, right? What if there's a pandemic? And the, the fourth is about strategic changes. What if there's a change in your demand forecasts? And like I said, these aren't necessarily bad or good, right? Volatility is a huge source of opportunity. But what you want to do is get your people focusing as much on those external and strategic changes as on the financial and operational ones. And the reason why is that between 1999 and 2019, what we saw in a study that we did of publicly held companies, what we saw was three quarters of the causes of sustained decrease in firm value were external and strategic risk, not financial and operational risk. And yet we focus our people, right? Operate, 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 operate. And in so many cases, that just means that we hit the wall harder, going faster and we hit the wall harder. Or we say we're going to get agile and we're just going to pivot, but we never look out far enough to see if we have enough time to pivot. Do you think this could be fixed with having a proper mission or vision? Kind of like Amazon always plays the long game. They want to be the most customer-centric company in the world and they kind of really take it hard. Or like also in, in this Conscious Capitalism book, he always talks about like being super customer-centric. I just had Fred Reichel, the founder of NPS, on the call. And in his new book, he also talks about like being like super pro-customer. And if you do this, then, you know, people vote with their wallets and this is the right strategy versus being focused on short-term gains and results. So curious what your take is on this. I think there's a deeper issue. Customer centricity is often a, a good strategy in relationship-driven businesses and transactional, purely transactional one-off businesses. Maybe not, right? Who knows? It really depends on what's your industry, what's your model. In a lot of what I do, which is consultative, you know, yeah, it's all about relationship, right? So it's all about being good to your customer and being always providing more value than they pay for. But I think there's a bigger issue, and, and this is something that I think Amazon's really good at when you take a look at their, whatever it is, their, their 12 core principles, is the second piece of the ABCs of resilient growth. So we talked about awareness. The second is about behavior change, right? If your people know that that tsunami is coming, it doesn't matter if they don't have the tools to get off the beach, right? And so how do you make sure that, that you have the skills to make sense of, to take advantage of, and be resilient to, to recover from radical changes around you, to your finances, your operations, your external environment, and your strategy? If your people don't have those skills, you, know, you can tell them that the world is going to end, that the sky is going to fall, but they're all just going to run around like chickens. Right? So we've got to build those skills into our organizations. And I think that's something that, that a company like Amazon is incredibly good at and incredibly conscious of. Could you give some examples? You know, like the, the first thing I think about, like kind of how people went from being in the office to being remote and kind of like having to deal with this. Could you give some, some examples? 
Yeah. So one thing that Amazon does, I think that's really useful is that they have a focus on using data and using logic. So using what we know statistically and what we know logically to make decisions. And at the beginning of every meeting, whoever called the meeting has a six-page document that they've written about what's the purpose of the meeting, what's the logic, what are the interests of the people involved, why is the person who's writing this or calling this meeting an expert or someone who is relevant to the conversation, and what's the timeline for making a decision, right? So that's what I call lead, and and we talk about it extensively in the book. What's the logic, empathy, what do you understand about the other parties involved, ideally so that you can get feedback about things you might not understand? Uh, authority, even if you don't have positional authority, why why might this be like something you've experienced before? And then deadline, what's the earliest and the latest that we can make a decision about this? If you run meetings by simply laying out information like that, or if you report up to your boss in that way, you've inoculated almost any reason people can cut you down for political purposes. And you get right down to how do we make a good decision about this situation. I think Amazon's incredibly good at that. I don't know so much about how they teach people to give directions, but there's a second piece of advice that I think is really useful for managers. How many times, David, have you been, when you were younger, were you in situations where a manager had come, they give you half a piece of information, and then they just disappear for two weeks and you didn't know what to do with it? I never... You're laughing. <laughs> no, but I laugh because I, I'm, I dropped out of school when I was 16 and became an entrepreneur. So I never had a manager, but I've been that person a lot. You know, hey, we should do this and this, you know, and then walking away. You know? <laughs> so, and then like after two weeks, like, dude, why the fuck didn't you really properly do this? I'm guilty of that. So you know what I'm talking about. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I started off, my grandfather was an entrepreneur. My father was an entrepreneur. I spent much of my career as an entrepreneur. And so I never learned a lot of these big business skills. and. At one point, my head of strategy, this amazing guy, former special forces operator, heavy duty, like went down behind the lines in North Korea every night for six years. And if he ever got caught, it was going to be an international incident. Like, this is a man who knows how to manage risk. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. And I'd come in every day and I'd give half direction to him. And one day he just got pissed off in the way that only someone like that can get pissed off. <laughs> he said, here's, here's how you're going to give direction to me in the future. And it's something that's always stuck with me because it's so obvious once you hear it, and yet you've never received direction like this. He said, the first thing is, what do we know about the situation? What do we not know and what's likely to change? If you give people that contextual information, they can start to operate independently. The second is, what's the objective, right? Sure, here's what I want you to do, but also here's the larger picture of why I want you to do that. You know, as a manager, sometimes you can't communicate some of that stuff because there's confidential information or whatnot, but it's really useful to do it when you can. The third piece is, what does success look like, right? What are our criteria for success? What are our criteria for failure, right? We never talk about that. And more importantly, especially if you're the kind of person like me who gives half direction and then disappears for two weeks, how do we know that our criteria are no longer true, right? That they're no longer valid. Because if you give people that information, then they can innovate when you're not there. You are no longer the blocker. The next piece is who's in charge while I'm gone? Like inevitably, 
something's going to go crazy. I haven't fully thought about it. I've put about five minutes into this problem. Who makes decisions while I'm not here? And you got to back that person having made a bad decision if they make decisions when you're not there. Always got to back it. And then the last piece is if I don't come back, right? Because this is the kind of thing that happens over the DMZ in North Korea. If I don't come back, everything goes wrong. What do you do next? If you give people that information, when you give them directions, you don't need to micromanage anymore, especially if you've taught them how to do that lead messaging I talked about, about when they communicate up to you, what's the logic? What do they understand about your situation? Why might they know something about this? And then how long do we have to respond? All of a sudden, you've cut out most of the reasons that you have middle management processes. That's really cool, actually. I'm a huge SOP fan, standard operating procedures. And I just took the notes while you went through this. I'm going to implement this in, in our businesses because in a previous business of mine, when we did projects, we started doing, we called them half sheets. It was just like a half page, not as elaborate as Amazon six pages, just what's the objective of the project, who's leading the project and what has to happen. So this project is called finished, not as elaborate as yours, but this helped us so much, you know, before it was like, other chaos, but having this was a huge leap forward. And I really love how detailed this is what you just shared. It sounds detailed, but once you get it into your head, it's so easy and obvious. A, it's a checklist. And I'm not a checklist person, to be clear. I'm not a checklist person, but having that offloads so much cognitive effort of figuring out what you're trying to say. It just kind of puts it in a frame. And when you talk about SOPs, I think one of the big things is when we were talking about success metrics, right? How do we know that this metric is no longer relevant, right? When you develop an SOP, one of the pieces of that is you get it to be a larger organization or an organization where the first generation of managers is left is making sure that people understand when the SOP doesn't apply. It's not just like blindly following this, like we've always done like this. Yeah. I was talking to head of procurement at a major organization that's like, this is crazy, right? You've got your, your executives filling out paperwork to make sure that they don't steal money while they're traveling by doing something that they shouldn't. And when you do the math, you're spending more on compliance than they could possibly steal. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, why are you doing that? And the guy said, well, it's because of these other things. Like I've been actually pushing to cut that. It's these other things in these other parts of the organization that make it impossible. And that's why you need to be really clear about when is this rule not valid? Otherwise, you get three generations of managers later and no one knows why. We've always done it that way. We've always done it like this, yeah. I hate hearing that phrase. It drives me nuts. <laughs> Very interesting. This kind of reminds me of Tim Ferriss' 4-Hour Workweek from ages ago. I think he was drowning in requests from his support staff, you know, like, can we give refunds? Can we do this? Can we do that? And then I think he had like a rule, like if it's not more than 50 bucks and makes the customer happy, do whatever the heck you want to do. Cut down the support tickets and buy a lot. Do you have more frameworks like this that you can share with us? Because I love, love frameworks like this because this makes life so much easier. Like I said, I'm not a framework guy. <laughs> yes, yes, we do. <laughs> it's really a well-structured, what's the book really about? It's certainly about rogueways and it's about volatility, but it's really about how do you figure out new things? How do you gain new knowledge? And philosophy is what they call epistemology. And it's about this thing that we never kind of learn in school, right? We learn all of these higher level things, right? How do you do geometry? How do you do this? How do you do that? 
But you never learn why do you do it. And this book is about that deeper level of knowledge, right? How do you figure out what tools to use in your toolkit to understand, to take advantage of, and be resilient to new situations? And so we talked about awareness, just to go back to the big framework, right? The ABCs of resilient growth. So we talked about awareness, right? What are those things that you need to changes you need to be aware of and for your organization to be aware of? We talked about behavior change, right? How do you build these skills to take advantage of change into your organization so that you don't need to have so many constricting processes that, that will sink you when the world changes? And then the third piece is about culture, right? And we talked about two basic concepts. So one, how do you give better directions? Right. And then the second is how do you create better executive communication lower in your organization so that people have the ability to speak about things they might not fully understand in ways that you'll hear? Because what you know, and you've seen this whenever there's a screw up, someone knew what was going to happen. Someone said something and then they weren't heard. Right. Like anytime there's like the Titanic sinks or whatever, this inevitably is the conclusion of the blue ribbon panel. So how do you remove that in your organization? And if you can remove that, then you remove the need for all kinds of process to manage risk. I think it's cultural things. You don't have a proper air culture. You don't have like, people are shy to speak up if something's going wrong. I live in Turkey right now, and there's an example from Turkish Airlines where the co-pilot did not dare to tell the pilot that he's doing something wrong because he's older. In Turkish culture, you don't criticize somebody who's older than you. And they did not fatally crash, but the plane like had to emergency land hard and like cause some damage because he did not dare to speak up, kind of not having this proper error culture. Something that we're doing in my business is we have an error log or improvement log where we always share the things that go wrong. You know, everybody has to add what's going wrong in this department, customer complaints, any mess up basically. And then we talk about this in the leadership meeting and think what which SOP can we change so this will never happen again. And you can't get in trouble for committing a mistake, but you get in real trouble if you don't add it to the error log. So we're like a self-healing machine. So I'm curious, what other tools do you have to shape this culture or get this into people's heads? So I think what you just described is really key, right? How do you change the incentive structure, right? And it's not just hard incentives. It's not just how big a bonus do I get? It's soft incentives. What do you publicly reward people for doing? Because at the end of the day, once people get past a certain earnings level, right, it's all about ego and all about career survival. And so the question rapidly becomes, how do you shift that, right? And one of the things you just talked about was like, we want you to make mistakes. One of the things I talk about is this idea of risk bands, right? What's the most and what's the least amount of risk that we want you to take? And by the way, I'll fire you for not taking enough risk. <laughs> <laughs> I won't fire you for taking too much if you ask, but I will fire you for not taking enough. Totally changes the perspective. I always tell people that direct reports to me like, dude, like freaking push me. I never had somebody who I had to reel back in, but I often had people that I had to push like, come on, dude, just like go for it. And it takes a while until people understand that it's actually the culture and okay. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm serious. Like, please, please go for it. Apologize later. And so the, the question really, and we talk a lot about this in chapter eight of the book, is exactly this. How do you create these hard and soft incentives in your organization? How do you build those SOPs to encourage innovation in your company? And, and there are all of these just small, simple things you can do, like how you manage meetings. 
I have been in so many poorly managed meetings and I can probably count on like two hands the number of well-managed meetings that I've been in. It's stunning. And it comes down to, in a lot of cases, like you said, your, your half sheet, right? Like, what's the objective of the meeting? What is the role I expect everybody in this meeting to play? How will we know we've been successful? What are next steps, right? What are the next steps we're discussing? Is this a visioning meeting where there isn't a clear next step? Is this an alignment meeting where we're asking for your your direction, but you aren't operationally involved? Is this a decision-making meeting where the next step out of this could be any of a number of things? What's the goal? In so many meetings they go to, it's not clear what success looks like. And so you get 20 people in a room at $300, $500 an hour. You add this up in a large organization, you can understand where the margins go. <laughs> <laughs> when I was working with Microsoft, one of the things that was really interesting was everybody had the right to turn down a meeting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. If this isn't going to be efficient for me, I don't need to be there. Interesting. What does it look like if you have to pitch a meeting? Hmm. <laughs> It gets you thinking a lot harder about how you're burning the company's money. Yep. This is why at Amazon, I guess they write six page long essays on like why this thing actually makes sense, you know? Yeah. You're not going to call a meeting unless it's worth 20 hours to write a six page essay that's going to be tight, right? Because if that's successful, that, that brief is going to go up to your, your boss's boss. That's so interesting. You know, I think another title for your book would be What Can Small Organizations Learn from the Big Guys? Kind of what, what they do right. Oh, that's a good idea. Kind of taking what like from the hard stuff that has been figured out over there, synthesizing it down and then making it available for everybody. I hadn't thought of it. That that really is kind of the frame that I came from small organizations who service large organizations at a strategic level, but I ran small organizations. And then I went and, and I spent a couple of years at Stanford going through executive training things. And the book's really about compressing all of that. So it's exactly what you just said. So you're going to change the title of the book? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask my publisher if I can do that. <laughs> we talked about the ABCs of resilient growth. So awareness, and we have tools for doing that. Behavior change, we basically walk you through all of the tools for increasing innovation in your organization. And then culture change. What are those small things you can do in terms of like how you manage a meeting differently, how you give directions better, how you teach people really basic executive communication skills so that they can be heard more effectively in your organization. And it's just implementing these simple things. It changes the quality of your decision-making. It changes the quality of your innovation. And it allows you to be a much more effective company, whether you're a small, medium, or large organization. We've done this this type of training with the largest companies in the world. And we've also done it with a small family farm in Ohio. Right, like this farming on a hundred acres. I don't know how that converts into hectares, unfortunately, but it's a small itty bitty thing. And they've all had the same resilience response in the face of COVID. That they've done much, much better than their peer set is a result of thinking about resilience and growth and, and how you link those two things. Because at the end of the day, it's these disruptions that dislodge industries and create opportunities for insurgents, for new players to scale. Because everyone else is just trying to bail out their boat after they got capsized. If you've you've flipped your kayak faster than your competition, it's blue ocean for you. These guys are are back there with sharks. That's how you win in more volatile situations. 
Do you know emergence? It's kind of spelled like, in German, it's emergenz. It's basically, for example, how a ant colony, it's a culture thing. So how an ant colony works, that there's like three or four types of ants, you know, like workers, warriors, etc. And when they walk past each other, they always smell what kind of the other one is. And once the balance is off, let's say there's like way more, there's like no more warriors because they've been fighting like whatever an attacker, then the workers turn automatically into warriors. So your team, if you create the right culture, your team knows what to do without getting like direct input, kind of similar to what your relative was in Korea, right? What he shared, kind of similar. Yeah. How do you make sure that no matter what goes wrong, that the best decision is being made? What changes the best decision is being made? I think that idea of emergence, it's a natural attribute of many complex systems that you move towards structure with just a couple of simple rules. And so the question becomes, what are those rules? I suspect a lot of what you're talking about is built into management techniques like holacracy, which is built on that idea of, of kind of how do circles of people find the best thing to do in relationship to kind of all of the other circles of people in an organization. You know, it's a really interesting approach. You know, Zappos tried to scale that up at one point with Tony. Well, Tony went to a model that he called Teal, which I know less about, but it's kind of like Holacracy 4.0. They kind of found their own situation that worked well for them. But I, I think what's interesting is that they proved these kinds of things are possible. The next question is whether they're feasible and whether they're feasible without a leader like Tony. He was a pretty incredible guy. Very interesting. But they are possible in smaller organizations, for sure. The question is whether they're possible in units of Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's definitely interesting. I, I'm not sure if I would go towards holacracy. I think it's kind of creating emergence by having like very strong vision, mission values that everybody kind of really understands and lives and breathes and every management decision is kind of explained with the core value and people getting shout-outs and props every time they do something that's in line with the core values, etc. That's kind of like my... Currently, how I operate my businesses. I'm not sure if I have the balls to go that route. <laughs> Definitely an interesting concept. Yeah. My point is, I think that there are ways to manage emergent businesses, and we're learning how to do that better. Whether holacracy is the right answer or not, I probably wouldn't run a holocratic organization for many of the same reasons you wouldn't. But there are options out there, and, and they're interesting, and they're worth taking a look at. Jonathan, this was really amazing. Thank you very much. I'll definitely check out your book for, for everybody out there. It's jonathanbrill.com slash roguewaves. I think you can learn what the big guys are doing right and implement in, in your smaller businesses. I'll definitely get the Audible version. Really looking forward to it. Thank you very much for being on the show, Jonathan. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your having me. And for those of you who want to give us some love, it would be awesome if you go to your Apple Podcast app and give us a review. We'd really appreciate this. And I'm looking forward to seeing you on the next show. Jonathan, thank you very much. Thank you so much, David. Appreciate it. Is your sales team spending too much time researching leads and accounts? We take over all the labor-intensive sales development tasks so your team can focus on building relationships and closing more deals. We don't just build lists. We take a strategic research-based approach to find your team qualified leads every day. Ready to start? Schedule your free consultation at taskdrive.com. That's T-A-S-K-D-R-I-V-E dot com. Thanks for listening to the How We Solve podcast. Dominate your market and crush the competition with our step-by-step playbooks. Subscribe right now in your favorite podcast player or visit howwesolve.com.